All right, let's make a stop. Good afternoon, good evening, dear listeners. You are today on the podcast Research, Lives and Cultures. And today I have the pleasure to have with me a research fellow, uh, Dr. Yi. You'll have to tell Yi. me your Yi. <laughs> Yi Jin. Okay, I'm not going even, to, I'm not even going to try to say your name properly. It's always quite embarrassing. Yi Jing. Yi Jing. That's very good. <laughs> Most people can't pronounce my, my, my name properly either, so uh, I get away with this. And uh, I met Yi many, many years ago when she was a PhD student, and now she has received a, a prestigious Welcome Trust uh, Sir Henry Dale Fellowship, um, and she's now based at the University of Manchester. And it's really, really a pleasure to, to have you on, on the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation and, and hearing about some of your experiences in, in transitioning in, in your research career. So can you get us started and, and tell us about, you know, giving, giving us an overview of your research career so far? I guess it's a long stretch of time, maybe, you know, in a few minutes, but give us a sense of, you know, how you started in your research life. Okay, so I started as a chemist in China doing a chemistry degree for seven years, uh, including bachelor and master degree. And then after that, uh, a very unexpected opportunity, I was awarded a overseas research scholarship funded by the British Council, which gives me the opportunity to study in molecular biology and biotechnology at the University of Sheffield for four years. And that led me into enzymology from a pure organic chemist uh, type of research. And then after that, in 2014, I moved to University of York as a postdoc to learn structural biology with Professor Gideon Davis. And in 2017, I moved to uh, Cardiff University and started my independent research group as a group leader. And now, uh, just two months ago, I moved to University of Manchester and uh, to start my uh, fellowship here. That's a pretty stellar career transition. So, I mean, before we get started in, in the sort of the, the, the current experience that, that you have of, of research, what was the driver originally in terms of coming to the UK? Because there are tons of bachelor students from, you know, from China who will be desperate to come to the UK. So getting, you know, a scholarship to come to come to the UK to study is pretty remarkable. So what was it that you had done or were you just an incredibly talented student? How did you manage to get that in the first place? I actually never thought about um, studying abroad until the summer before I finished my master's degree. It was on an international conference organized by my Chinese supervisor back then, Yufen Zhao. And uh, on that conference, um, I was presenting a poster and uh, I met Later on, my PhD supervisors, Professor Mike Blackburn and Professor John Walthall, and they were actually looking for a student who has got chemistry background, knows phosphorus chemistry, and would like to learn something biology related to this subject. And they thought, okay, you, your English is pretty good. And, uh, but although you need to uh, pass your uh, English test, which is IELTS, and your science is great, and we encourage you to apply for this uh, scholarship. And uh, I remember back then the story was I literally locked myself inside my apartment trying to pass the IELTS at the highest score. And in the end, I think I got eight out of nine just a month not doing anything because um, a high score in English test is very important on top of your GPA, your, um, you know, like publications and things like that. 
yeah, so in the end, I, I, I got the scholarship and then I, I just never looked back. I had to do also the language test uh, when I was in the US and I'm sure I didn't get that high uh, level, I must admit. Uh, so well done. <laughs> but it's interesting because in a way you went to this conference, but at the time, were you already considering a, a PhD or research career or was it just it's sort of the door to research opens through just having that, uh, that conversation? Um, actually, it wasn't... It wasn't um... Before I met them, or before we officially started the conversation about me applying for a scholarship to come to the UK, I wasn't thinking about moving abroad at all because I I had a, a, a relationship, long-term relationship back then. I was going to finish my master's degree and then move back to my hometown in the university and become a university lecturer. That was my life plan. But I think for everybody, um, your career development and your life have to sometimes uh, come together in a way. And uh, out of the blue, I broke up with my uh, boyfriend back then. And they just and also the job uh, application at the university in my hometown wasn't going well because they do re- they did require a PhD degree instead of a master's. So many things just come together. There is an opportunity to come to the UK and there is no string tied uh, with any relationship and the job hunting in China didn't go well. And, you know, just all these factors together made me want to jump out of the regional social circle and move to the UK. Did you have already the inner confidence of, okay, I can do this? I mean, in a way, you know, jumping from, you know, leaving your country. I mean, it's something that I've done myself. And sometimes we go because we just want an adventure. And it's like, we're not too scared about what's going to happen next. We just say, whatever happens, it's fine. I'm just, I'm just there for the experience. But for some people, you know, the, being worried about changing country or, you know, going, you know, to a place where you don't have any friends or even knowing whether you're going to like the research or not. I mean, until we are in it, we, we actually don't really know. What gave you the sense of, I'm just going to do that? I think it's, um, this is the importance of the mentorship back then. It's the encouragement of other people. Telling, because I not only have to change, you know, studying in totally different language, a different culture, but I was changing field altogether uh, from an organic chemist doing purely synthesis into, um, you know, molecular biology and biotechnology, studying protein structures using a nuclear magnetic resonance as a technique, studying enzymology. I had a self-doubt back then as well, whether I could make anything out of this, maybe whether I could uh, be able to uh, deliver a PhD altogether Mm -hmm. afterwards. But it's the encouragement of my uh, PhD supervisors by Mike and John and by my Chinese supervisor back then uh, saying, you should try it, you should go out, open your horizon, broaden your horizon and learn more you will be able to do it. Um, And also another another thing worth mentioning is back then, 2008, when I arrived in Sheffield, I remember there there weren't many um, overseas students, Chinese students back then. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think it's it's that encouragement and the confidence that other people had in you really made me just decide I can do it. And I tried my best to uh, join the initial training in MBB um, and and just transferred from there. How did you negotiate with your own family? Because thinking now, you know, I've got older children and the idea of them, you know, traveling on the other side of the world. And one of my son is considering doing a master's in uh, in South Africa and thinking of him, go, you know, going that far is really scary. This is an important consideration in terms of making this decision. You know, our, our careers, we are not, we don't live in isolation and we have to convince our family that we will be fine. And, you know, and it's not that we have to convince them necessarily to let us go, but, it, you know, this is part of the conversation we need to have. I'm very lucky in that sense. 
I have to say, because um, I grew up on a university campus um, since I was born, and both my parents were very, very supportive. They are very open-minded. And they, if their daughter, and they, never mind, remember, it's a single child policy in China. So I was the only uh, child. But when I told them I had this great opportunity to apply for a scholarship to be funded as a study in the UK, and I'm going to pursue a PhD to do great science with great people, um, they were very supportive. And uh, for them, um, yeah, since I was 18, they just let me go. I'm moving from hometown Harbin to Xiamen University, which is six hours away by the by the plane. Oh, by so, the plane, that's simple. Yeah. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, nice. from northern China, moving to southern China for seven years, uh, studying in Xiamen University. And then later on, jumping from Xiamen Univers- uh, University to Sheffield, to the UK. For them, it's just another journey for their daughter to pursue. And uh, they were very supportive. And even until now, um, after I finished my PhD or postdoc, they were not saying, um, you should come back to China and uh, you should stay with us. For them, it's like, what is your oyster? If you want to pursue a career, wherever you are, we are supportive of you. Yeah, it's important to have that um... I mean, something I need to learn of letting go of my own kids, that's for sure. <laughs> so if we're thinking about your, your research career, what would you say is really your internal motivator? Because for some people, it's about maybe really enjoying the directly the experimental work. For others, it's, you know, making connection. But we all have sort of internal motivation that really keeps us going, drivers, you know, help us to, you know, to stay at it because doing research is hard. So if you're thinking, okay, what is within you that really pushes you to thrive in, in, in your research life? What drives me, I would say, it's the freedom in academia to do things and to try out the ideas in my mind. And it's that freedom is very important for me. And I'm lucky enough that throughout my career, all my supervisors, uh, my PhD supervisors and my postdoc supervisors, so they are all very liberal. They are all very supportive of me trying things out, independent of their supervision, their research directions. And uh, that is something to me very important that I have the freedom. And on the other hand, um, I remember once I went for a postdoc interview, um, the potential supervisor for that postdoc told me, and I totally agree, is when you do research, you're not just doing something you are interested in. You need to also consider what other people are interested in. And for me, it's absolutely true that what other people are interested in is totally aligned with what I'm curious about. And then the sparks would just happen. And uh, that actually really drives me. I've interviewed a lot of uh, postdoc about, you know, the, the challenging process of moving from the, the project that you may be working on during your postdoc to developing your own research space. And one of the things that you just said is, you know, to work with supervisors who give you a sense of independence of creating you know, the, the space. Because obviously, when you're employed as a postdoc, you need to actually do the experiment that are related to the grant that you're employed on. And at the same time, you know, creating the space of what will be your own space as a researcher. So what, what has been your own approach in terms of this transition from, okay, doing the work that is necessary for the PI, for the principal investigator employing you, and then at the same time, having that space of exploration where you can build your own research niche? Um, obviously, I have to make time for it, and I have to think harder so it's um it doesn't require that extra level of hard working 
quality in a way that I'm willing to try to do something else um, using my own time. Although, you know, when you were a postdoc, yes, you're using the PIs, other PIs resources. Um, but um, as long as they are supportive, I'm willing to put in that time. And I think it's also, um, it's then I realized I could become a PI in future myself because I'm not totally relying on the ideas given by my supervisors and other PIs. Um, I can have my own idea, small to begin with, but new. And I can do the troubleshooting. I have the experimental approaches to uh, prove my own ideas. And it's that small experiment. It's small experiments, you know, uh, during my postdoc or during my PhD that actually made me aware that I can be novel. I can be creative. And I can um, lead a small piece of research of my own. So that's later on proved, is proven to be very helpful when I tra uh, translate from uh, uh, a postdoc to a PI myself. Yeah. Did you have at some point the need to have a conversation with your PIs in terms of, okay, that's the work that we've done together. Okay, this belongs to you. And, you know, this is the things that I've done on the side. We often have conversation about research niche that when you're applying for your first fellowship, you need to demonstrate that you're not, you know, a, a clone of your of your PI. You, you, you are somebody who is developing something, you know, on the edges or you're combining different things in a different way. So can you take us through the process that you went through to identify the research niche that is your own away from maybe the PI that you were working with, you know, at, at, in your last postdoc? So to establish the niche, especially when you wrap up together and apply for a fellowship or when you apply for the job to say, I'm bidding for this position as a PI, and this is my research proposal. Uh, when I thought, when I was doing that, the first thing I was thinking about is, what can I do? What I've learned over the years? And for me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite uh, unique because I'm a hodgepodge. Uh, you know, I do chemistry, I do organic synthesis, I do some protein NMR, and I also do uh, protein X-ray crystallography. I do a lot of enzymology. I learned some chemical biology techniques in Gideon Davis lab in York. So I've learned all of this. I've learned how they run the group and how they pitch uh, for funding opportunities when I was a, either a co-I or when I was a participating postdoc. So when it's my own uh, turn, uh, I look at my skill sets, as I just said, and I also look at what is needed at the moment. You know, what is the topic that the funding bodies are interested in funding? And then I try to think about something else. I wasn't uh, that afraid of proposing something that I had no training background in. Um, so... Uh, for example, for my Wellcome Trust uh, Henry Dale Fellowship, I proposed it. I proposed to study a, a bacterial pathway, namely the sulfoglycolytic pathway, which um, we I studied part of it when I was a postdoc when the pathway was first discovered in two thousand and fourteen. But I also know. Uh, Gideon and, uh, and his collaborators are also studying this pathway. So how can I differentiate my research program away from theirs? Um, is The good thing about the fellowship is you can uh, propose the learning and the training and developing aspect of it so that uh, I've never actually studied or trained in microbiology. And all the work has been done with the uh, uh, the York and the uh, York group and his collaborators are more focusing on synthesis, uh, the substrate of the pathway, or studying a specific enzyme in the pathway. And so I want to study the pathway as a whole. 
And also I want to study the pathway in a different organism. And the, the, the other organism has got a biomedical uh, bio relevance. So in this case, I propose to study in the salmonella, uh, which is also a pathogen that we urgently need to tackle in terms of the disease treatment. And uh, so that's how I uh, proposed, I wrap up the research idea altogether. And uh, in the fellowship, I will learn in, by collaboration um, quite a bit of microbiology. Uh, I will, again, by collaboration, learn quite a lot of the bioinformatics through uh, collaboration. Uh, so yeah, establishing the niche is um, not that not that hard in my opinion. When once I uh, started running a small research group by myself for one and a half years in Cardiff before I submitted the fellowship application, uh, because um, I can already see how to construct the fellowship in a way so that I don't tread on other people's toes. But on the other hand, it has to be novel and it has to be a, a integrated project with several objectives in it, uh, which can answer a key scientific question or solving a, a key um, social health issue. Did it take you a long time to put it together? Because again, you know, I've observed often that some postdoc kind of in the last few months of their postdoc position start pulling their hair and start saying, oh, you know, what's next? You know, maybe I should apply for a fellowship. And you can't really pull a fellowship out of the bag, you know, in a couple of weeks. You know, it may take months and months to actually bring things together in terms of the skills and the gap, you know, in the, in the research arena and also, you know, finding things that also you find interesting. So in your case, how long would you say it took from the moment that you say, okay, I'm just going to now kind of go for this? Yeah, I have to say, um, when I decided to apply for the fellowship, it took quite a while to convince myself that, I was going to go for it. I was going to come up with a very holistic idea, a project to bid for a fellowship because it is a substantial piece of work just to put the proposal together, to develop all those objectives in a realistic and a composed and a structured way. Um, so for me, I uh, with a Wellcome Trust Fellowship, it required... Um, a initial application. So the first stage, so you submit a, a two-pager and to convince the committee that it's a topic they're interested in and it's the general research idea that the direction is what they are happy to find. And then after, that didn't take long. Uh, I think in two weeks' time, they replied me and said, uh, uh, you know, we invite you to submit a full application. And I was like, great, you know, I'm halfway in. But actually, it's from that moment you realize the, 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 the marathon has just begun. Um, and because I was a PR already uh, then, I had to run a research group. I had to um, deal with uh, a, quite a bit of a teaching. So I didn't rush it. And uh, they, I when I when I realized um, I may have uh, I may have to have a bit more time to hand in the full application. Wellcome Trust was very supportive because for them um, they would rather see a very well prepared, very well thought through proposal than something being rushed in and uh, full of holes. So I was from the, from the preliminary application to the full application, it took me a year. And I remember it's that year I did so much reading because I had to teach myself uh, quite a bit for the microbiology and for the bioinformatics I proposed on the fellowship application. But also uh, I had to polish it off for those pages of research proposal you were going to 
I was going to write. So that took quite a long time. I remember I, I came to my office every morning, half past seven, uh, and then didn't go home until 10 o'clock in the evening. And um, this is just really, I don't know whether I should encourage other people to do so. That was um, your reality. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, just because I was driven to submit a very well written proposal, very well thought um, through proposal. So um, I later on actually was diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency because I literally locked myself in the office just to think about, you know, using my spare time to how to write this, a perfect fellowship, I would call it. Uh, but never mind, I would say, <clears throat> um, it's not just that you lock yourself in the office. You need to talk to people uh, on top of the reading and also to seek the peer support. And again, I was very lucky that uh, at uh, School of Chemistry at Cardiff University, I had two fantastic colleagues who are two years ahead of me in their career stage. And they were, uh, so this is Dr. Louis Luck and uh, Dr. Yushan Tsai. And both of them are very supportive, very critical of my proposal. Um, so... Um, that's what made it and they took time yeah so um one of the things that's interesting is that you were you you actually were already a pi so can you tell us about the transition from um from your your last postdoc to actually having that first fellowship in cardiff M many many uh postdocs in a way may think oh i need another postdoc and i did another postdoc before they have a sense of be becoming a pi but what what kind of position was that and what made you actually decide okay i'm just going to jump to become a PI? Again, this is, uh, I think my path is a bit unconventional, I have to say, uh, because I was very happy in Gideon's lab, st learning structural biology and the chemical biology, and all my projects were working very well. I was working hard, I was uh, delivering results, and I was getting some good publications out of my hard work and the Gideon supervision. Um, but then it was a, um, a, a unique opportunity that um, the head of uh, chemical biology section at School of Chemistry, Cardiff University, came to me and said, we are advertising a PI position, a, a, a research fellow position. And uh, would you be interested in applying? And I had the same thought. My first response was, um, you know, have I got enough postdoc experience? Am I good enough? Uh, am I ready to be a PI? And, uh, but for me, it was, um, my, my thought was, if there was a job open, I'm gonna apply. And whether I get it or not is, another thing. So um, obviously, again, you have to uh, prepare the job application, prepare for the interview in your spare time. And, um, and in the end, I got the job. Mm. And so the transition had some self-doubt. But I remember when I told Gideon that I got a job offer at Cardiff University, he said something I would never forget in my life. He said, oh, congratulations. You will start worrying about other people's life now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what kind, what kind of setup was it, that fellowship? Because again, I, I suppose it's like, uh, you know, jumping into a lectureship position, you know, you need to access funding. So did you have to get funding from the start or were you given sort of a, um, a funding package to get started? Um. I had a um, rather small but uh, generous startup package, I would say, for the size of our school. Um, so I was given £25,000 to begin with. And out of that, I literally built a small lab myself. 
including purchasing some small equipment. But uh, as soon as I started the job, I started looking at other funding opportunities. And the good thing about being appointed as a research fellow, and back then wasn't on a permanent position, it wasn't a permanent lectureship, it was a five-year contract uh, research fellow, was I can have the access to some small pot of money, including uh, Welcome Trust Seed Award, the Academy of Medical Sciences Springboard Award, and I had to come up with a proposal and submit it, went through peer review. And uh, I was lucky that I was awarded three out of the four proposals I submitted. In That's the amazing. One and That's a half very, years. High, very high success rate. Oh, thank you. So with that uh, small pot of money, um, a little bit more than 200,000 pounds, I could build a crystallography lab to do protein crystallography in Cardiff School of Chemistry. And that was desperately needed back then. So it was really driven by the need of my research and also driven by what I'm eligible for. Because there are actually, in my opinion, there are more funding opportunities than I could possibly apply. But it's one of those things, you know, what should I go for first and you see, to select? What are the ones that I have the best chance of winning? And in the end, I think uh, it, was, it was a very happy experience that I didn't suffer too much from all the objections of the ground proposals. Yeah. So during the, your, your position in Cardiff, that's when you apply for the Wellcome Trust uh, Arendelle Fellowship. So now you've moved to the University of Manchester for, for this uh, fellowship. So again, that's an important decision in terms of, you know, having just set up a lab in Cardiff, then making the decision of going somewhere else to do to, for your fellowship. So what, what was, again, your, the process, your, your, you know, your process to decide that that was the right place for you to do your... Because, you know, having just set up a lab, some people may say, well, you know, why move? Because you could have done your, your fellowship in, a, you know, uh, in Cardiff. So why was it important for you to change at that stage? Um, you're absolutely right that it feels a bit... It feels very sad to um, not give up, but to move on uh, from one place to the other after spending four years. And uh, but for me, um, that's also what drives me to 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 do research is to learn. When I was in Cardiff, I was happy in a way that I was a small group leader. I had uh, three PhD students in my group, and at peak time, I had two postdocs working in the lab too. Um, but I feel I need to learn more. And so for me, especially for the research proposal I proposed in the fellowship, it would be a much better fit to move to Manchester and to be located in a more multidisciplinary environment. And that's what's actually... Uh, drives me to move to Manchester. Mm. Yeah, I know these, these are kind of hard transition. What do you think has been important in you becoming a research leader, you know, a PI? And uh, sometimes, I guess, you know, for many researchers, you know, the, the stage of, okay, Christ, now I'm in charge of others. You know, I'm the boss. <laughs> You know, people are depending on, you know, the way I think about things, you know, to progress their research, to progress their career. So could you talk to us about some of these experiences of, you know, establishing your life, establishing the dynamics, the interaction in, in your team? What has it been like? Um, my experience is mixed. Um, so to, to, to have the first PhD student, that is totally on the same wavelength as you uh, is very important. And uh, as a junior group leader, I was very enthusiastic and I was so determined to train my first PhD student myself. 
and to teach him everything I know. And although now he's actually, he's gone way beyond me, in my opinion, in many, many uh, techniques. Um, so the first PhD student, in my opinion, is very important. Um, the dynamics in the group can be, um, can be a bit variable because I feel I'm quite competitive person and I'm not particularly patient. So uh, sometimes I may appear to people to be a bit pushy, <laughs> um, but um, very soon I would learn. I learned different students have different characters and you need to talk to them in different ways. And it's, it's, it's a trial and error. And for me, I'm still learning and trying to figure out what is the best way of communicating with my, each of my PhD students. And now I've moved to Manchester and uh, there, are three, uh, there are still two PhD students staying in Cardiff for uh, various reasons. They couldn't move with me uh, due to you know, funding or family issues. So, um, and it's now this remote supervision and how to get most out of that. I know they are working very hard. They are very keen. And I try to do my bit to connect to them and to listen to them. And uh, on one hand, they want to grow. They want to achieve. And trust me, I find all my, I'm, I'm actually very lucky that all my students and postdocs are very driven. So they are very keen. But on the other hand, uh, from my point of view, I have got this leading purpose. I'm a, their mentor. I'm their supervisor. Although I may not be much older than them, but um, uh, I do take the responsibility of their, I wouldn't say the entire uh, research career in the future, but I do find myself in a position that I need to be responsible for their training, for their research philosophy. And that's what sometimes can happen simultaneously, spontaneously, but sometimes we do clash. Um, so I don't worry too much about uh, just being nice to my group members because they need to know what is right, what is wrong. When they made a mistake, I do not hesitate to point out to them, even though they may not be <laughs> happy to hear that uh, directly from me. Um, I, don't, I, I do make them aware that um, there is a certain way of doing things that can get your work, can get your re results published. And that there are other ways of doing things would be wrong or too sloppy. And you are not going to pass the reviewer's uh, critical eyes. Um, and so as long as I can con convince them what is, the what is my intention and the, what is our goal, of doing this piece of research. And as soon as they understand why, um, everything is easy. What, what do you think is the really the hardest, you know, in being a group leader in terms, and I'm not talking about, you know, getting grants and all that, but in terms of creating an environment where maybe people who have very different motivation than you, and, you know, because people come into the PhD for all sorts of reasons, you know, people will start a PhD because they still want to be students, you know, <laughs> they yeah. don't necessarily want a research career. And, and in a way, you know, as a PI, you know, what you want is for, you know, the, the ideas that you've worked really hard to develop, you, you know, you want the data, you want the information, but for some PhD students, you know, what they're after is not necessarily a research career. They're just there, you know, to get to acquire some skills, but they may consider you know, moving out of academia. And I mean, you remember from, you know, when I was working at, uh, at Sheffield as a researcher developer, you know, we always had lots of opportunities for people, you know, to develop professionally. And often there is a tension with some supervisors who are very reluctant to let their PhDs or postdocs get involved in professional development. So now that you are on, you know, on this side of the fence in terms of being a group leader yourself, you know, what do you think is really hard in 
creating a dynamic where people can really develop professionally, but their whole person, not just the science, so that they come, they become highly skilled professionals that can move into position, you know, whether it's in academia or outside of academia. Um, I would say, from my own experience, I start that dialogue with them very early on. So at the beginning of their PhD, I talk to them. What do you want? To, what do you want to achieve? What do you want to do after your PhD? And you would be surprised that not all of them know the answer. Um, and I'm the same. I was thinking back then when I was in my PhD, what I would like to do afterwards. You know, I could try patent attorney. I could even turn into a policewoman working in a forensic chemistry lab. You know, I was thinking about all sorts. But likewise, I, I asked them questions. But the purpose of me asking those questions, what they would like to do in future, was not to make them give me, give me the answer on the spot. I was trying to push them to think because as soon as they have any idea about their future or what they would like to do in future, I would say I always encourage them to tell me that. And then I would say, try this project because if you do this project, you will learn technique A, technique B, or technique C. And that would make you look very good on your CV. And you will have a lot to say in your interview when you go for job hunting. And you will be a more sought-after person if you try this project. So for me, the hard part was to design or adjust the project for each of my students. And this also happened during the pandemic when, you know, the lab could only open part-time and some of the students were not available all day uh, in the lab. And so I had to adjust with them in a way. And I think it was maybe an advantage uh, as a young PI that I was, I, I was willing to adjust with them and to... And I think also to um, communicate with them what my intention is when I suggest them to do certain experiments or when I suggest them to take on the whole project or even when I assign a, a project students to them, what my intention is. And as soon as they understand my intention, the rest of the conversation are not difficult. It's easier. No, I can yeah. completely get that. So, you know, coming from China, you know, in a, you know, in a British universities, you know, we, we're starting to have lots of conversation about implicit bias in terms of, you know, being a foreigner or being a woman, you know, in a very, uh, you know, male dominated uh, research environment. So what, what has been your own experience in terms of, you know, maybe some of the biases that you felt were there, not necessarily explicit ones, but how have you kind of experienced yourself, the research environment, in terms of your ability to really, you know, have a voice in the research community or in the institution when, you know, you are still kind of early stage as a PI? Um, I think I'm just a lucky person in that sense that I never worried that I will, I'm a woman and uh, I will be disadvantaged or I would be uh, suffering from the gender bias or race bias because the moment 2008 when I parachuted in the UK I just thought I was as equal as everybody else I would try my best to improve my English to mimic the accent try to learn the local dialect. And that in terms of research, in terms of science, I try to look up to the ones that are doing the best. And uh, so it never concerns me or worries me that uh, I'm a woman, I wouldn't deliver more. And I'm also, I think, because uh, I have been, haven't been a mother myself and I haven't been distracted by you know, the family side of the things. So most of the time, I think over the years, I could focus on my career development more. 
um, not because I didn't want to. I think it's just, uh, it's not because I didn't want to have a, a family. I think it's just, you know, that's how life works out. Yeah, so that's how I think about myself. But when it comes to um, promoting women in science, I've been doing that since I was a group leader. Um, you know, I, I hired two postdocs, uh, both uh, female researchers. So one of the postdocs is has been in, unemployed for one and a half years. And I um, hired her to work with me. And after two years training in my lab, now she moves into industry in full-time uh, employment as a research scientist in a small startup company. You could be a woman who, you know, yeah, doesn't manage to get a postdoc and basically end up leaving science altogether because you're not given a chance because you've not managed to secure a postdoc and actually being given a chance and, you know, to, to jump into a postdoc could make a difference between you leaving science altogether or not. And um, in a way, maybe being a woman yourself, sort of almost an extra motivation of giving other women the opportunity to, to have a go at, uh, you know, at a postdoc. What do you think is missing in maybe the way we are supporting you know, postdoctoral women in making that jump, you know, that transition from postdoc to, to PI? Um, I think there are, it's to make that jump. There are two things that are the catalysts. One is yourself, whether you are willing to make that jump or are you going to be scared off by the, just the idea of thinking I'm going to run a group, uh, I will be so busy uh, dealing with grant writing, publishing, supervising students, all that. Um, so I think in terms of the own mental motivation is, is very important. But on the other hand, I think uh, it's the, the research community does have some expectation from the postdocs who submit the CV to apply for a certain job and they look at your track record, they look at your publications. That expectation is there. It's, it's invisible, okay? Um, it's expected you can propose something uh, competitive, worth leading, and you need to... Um, uh, Put yourself out to bid for funding with all the, you know, ref return, all these requirements. So um, I think it's, I can understand, I can understand where it is from, but what needs to do more? I remember um, once I was having this conversation with a, with a visitor to our school. And uh, I said, you know, I'm thinking very hard how to publish this paper in impact, high impact journal. And I was thinking about a journal this and journal that. And, they, and uh, his comment was, you know, oh, oh, you shouldn't play games. You know, you should just focus on research. You should uh, keep your head down and uh, just do good research. But from my point of view is, yes, I, I'm, I have been doing that. I have been doing good research, uh, in, my, in my opinion. You know, I have been pushing really hard, but it's not me uh, thinking I'm good. It's what is the expectation out there? You know, when you look at my publication list, when you click on my uh, website, when you look at my CV, when I submit a grant proposal, you look at what have been published in the last five years. So it's that expectations there that... Sometimes if you haven't been lucky, like publishing uh, in the good journals, and you are excluded from that. But I think very often, um, the com I hope the research committee, the community could be more open to think what people could deliver in the future and willing to talk to them and give them opportunity to, to have a discussion instead of just looking at the CV and the publications and Google Scholar lists. 
Yeah, it's really interesting you talking about that because I was talking to um, to somebody who works for a research funder in Luxembourg, and they actually try they're going to trial a new approach in terms of the way they they're recruiting uh, fellows and create uh, what they call a narrative CV, which is basically a way where it's not just a CV that is based on you know yes yeah, so many publications, but is much more of a, a story of you know the approach to undertaking the career that in a way tries to go away from this very metric-based way of selecting people for the next stage. Can I ask you what really drives you to keep going? Um, it's, for me, the drive comes from this fact that I tell myself this job as a whole is a learning process. It's not just about learning a, a, a new technique it's very skill-based, but I'm doing a job of a three persons, if you think in that way. So, um, so being a group leader, being a, a research leader, I convince myself that every day I come to work, I'm dealing with a lot of things, but a lot of them, most of them are for me to learn. And I will, and they will become useful in the future. And also, when I train students or train my postdocs, when they could deliver something that I couldn't do or I never thought about it could happen in my research group, that was really exciting for me. It would, it would be more exciting than me getting a paper published or getting a grant awarded in a way because the good thing about this job is the human touch in it. So yes, we are doing research, but it's actually the researchers in your group, including yourself, that are doing the research together with you. So that human touch is important. And I always feel it's ever so joyful when uh, my former student got a, a former master student or project student in my group, uh, got a PhD offer from a top university or a top company or my former postdoc got a job offer and being employed by a company doing fantastic research in drug discovery to me that is very rewarding and that was I've always been very excited about it so all these things add up together really keep me going there was no single factor I say oh just to go for money or just go for the number of papers Obviously, those things are, are also rewarding, you know, being a researcher for sure. But it's the human. It's the human interactions. Um, when I see my students getting more mature, moving into the next the stage of their career, that's very exciting mm. for me. That's really nice to hear. So in sort of the, you know, final questions that I have for you, if you, um, you know, if you had to start all over again, would you do things differently? What and also, you know, what would you tell your young self to enjoy the the journey a bit more? I'm more of a forward looking person, so you know, like giving me a a, a, a hy hy hypothetical scenario, saying it's all over again. What would I do differently? I would say I had nothing to regret, and I was I've been really lucky to get the right support a lot of support by the kind of people, my former supervisors and my colleagues and the, the institute I've worked in. So I really have nothing to regret or I could do better. I don't think so. But I, if you ask me what uh, advice I could give to the other early career researchers, I would give them the same one as what uh, my uh, former supervisor, Gideon Davis, gave me. Be patient. Patience is important. I'm not saying you need to sit on things and just wait for it to happen. But a lot of the good things do take time to happen. Um, and as long as you keep at it, and you have faith in yourself, and you keep pushing, and you try hard. If you fail, you try again. Uh, try something better. The good things will happen. So um, 
I also tell myself to be patient because now in Manchester, I have to build a group all together all over again. But when I look back, you know, the four years I spent in Cardiff, um, I learned a lot um, by trial and error, by um, experiencing, just going through with other colleagues, with my own team. And uh, yeah, so that took four years. And now I have another five years funded by the Wellcome Trust to create another group and try to establish myself here and expand my research scheme. And uh, that's all, that will all take time. But I think I'm definitely a more patient person than a younger me four years ago, I would say. Can I ask you, do you still get a chance to go into the lab? Yes. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I still enjoy uh, fishing crystals with, uh, with my PhD students. Yeah, I still enjoy doing that. And uh, here in Manchester, at the moment, I'm in the middle of building a group. So almost like I'm a general on my own. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I, I, I'm going to go to the lab and just try to uh, grow a batch of bacteria, try to purify a batch of protein, try to set up a crystallization tray and just see how it goes in a new institute, in a new environment. And I try my beginner's luck here again. And can I ask you two silly questions? Or maybe not so silly. What's your favorite piece of equipment? And what is your favorite experiment? <sighs> my favorite piece of equipment was the, um, the 500 megahertz NMR machine that I used in Sheffield when I was a PhD student because my project involves you know, a lot of fluorine NMR and I was spending most of my time setting up experiments on that. And I remember 2012, almost 10 years ago, uh, when my PhD supervisor, John Walther, moved to Manchester, actually, you know, MIB, who is um, one floor below me at the moment. The lab. Okay, wow, that's quite yeah. funny. We were very sad. We were waving goodbye to the little 500 megahertz magnets. And now it's good to see it's in good use, you know, being paired with a, a new cryoprobe with enhanced sensitivity. Um, so, yeah, that's my favorite equipment. And in terms of my favorite experiment uh, is the non-natural amino acid incorporation into a protein. And that is experiment that I heard of, I heard of throughout my PhD and uh, postdoc training. And I decided I was going to try it out myself when I have my own Uh, research project and when I first moved to Cardiff I tried it out it failed I just simply tried to incorporate a floral tyrosine into a green fluorescent protein and with all the design because uh, we have another expert in the school uh, who works on that so I thought I would like to try this because I would like to use the system for one of my other proteins I'm interested in but I failed big time. I couldn't make it work. And when I recruited my first PhD student, Patrick Bauman, I told him, I couldn't make it work. Please, you try it out. And I was trying to supervise him how to do things when I couldn't make it work myself. But after eight months of failing, he managed to work with a decent yield of the protein and with the great uh, properties. And as soon as he managed to achieve the non-natural amino acid incorporation into a small G protein, um, his whole PhD project just opened up. And he, the rest of his PhD project was built around that. Mm. So that was really exciting for me to see when something I couldn't make, make it happen, the younger generation, you know, my student could make it happen. That, that, that feels great. That's fantastic. Well, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you and um, really well done on your, you know, on your achievement and your hard work to, uh, to get to where you are. I wish you really all the best 
for your time in Manchester as a, as a Welcome Trust Fellow. Uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs>